Last week I spent some time with today's theme too. We talked about beautiful feet. Some of you were here, some of you weren't. We noted that in the days of the kings who stayed home during a battle or with their castle or with their city, they needed news. There was no CNN, no internet. There was no fast communication of any kind except could be had at the feet of a swift runner. The roads were not paved, they were not lovely, and the shoes were not Nike Air. And feet got beat up pretty good, running from a battle scene with news, king anxiously awaiting. As the runner came in and said, I have to see the king, and was appropriately screened and brought forward to the king, Of course, there could be bad news. I think that's why we say, hey, I'm just the messenger. Okay? If there's bad news, we aren't looking to be executed for delivering bad news because it makes the king unhappy. We're hoping that we might not be confused with the message we bear when it's bad news. Hey, I'm just the messenger. But if it's good news... The king looks at his sweaty, battered servant with bleeding feet and thinks to himself, how beautiful are feet that bring good news. And this saying is taken and it's made spiritual in Isaiah 52. Turn with me quickly there just because I think it's great for us to together review these passages where they are found I'm reading Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And here's Isaiah's framing. Who proclaim peace. Who bring good tidings. Who proclaim salvation. Who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Pretty beautiful. This imagery of redemption, of salvation that has come in good news. City. Saved, people saved. Romans 10 15, I'm sorry for my mistake in the bulletin, picks up on this language. I read this for you last week. I'll start with verse 14. How then can they call in the name of the one? They have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we were talking about this bit last week, and I'm going to pick up on that. You and I have been sent, not in the same way Jesus was, 
He was sent to the Father in a very unique way, a very special mission, something that none of the rest of us can ever replicate. Some of the good news he brings is good news we could never bring for ourselves or without him bring to another. But nevertheless, corporately, we're commissioned. As believers, we too are sent to proclaim the good news. Now, I'm going to suggest to you today that as I did last week in the theme, a little bit of preparation, because last week we were talking about making straight the path of our God and how John the Baptist was featured in the wilderness preaching this repentance that led to a baptism, preaching a message, part of which we heard today in Luke, and I'll pick up on that in just a minute. John is out there in the wilderness preaching what will be the forerunning message that Jesus will pick up on and Elijah had before him. It's a message of repentance, a message of good news, a message of redemption. But it involves an ethical component. It involves living. You heard in Luke, where John just spoke, the crowds ask him, what do we need to do? John's reply to them is, hey, if you have two tunics and someone else has none, Share it with them. In other words, John's commission or command of what it meant to live out good news for the common everyday citizen was to live in such a way that you weren't enjoying at the expense of another. There's a very uh, weird passage in Scripture. Few Adventist pastors will take it on, including me. It's just not that much... uh, fun to try to explain, but there's a passage of scripture called The Rich Man and Lazarus. Any of you read it? It's odd because Jesus seems in the passage to descend into hell, and there he finds a rich man named Lazarus who begs him for relief, for a drink of water, for some kind of, of, I don't know, help. And Jesus reminds him that in his life he had everything and shared nothing. Now, I think this passage is allegorical. I think that's where most Adventist commentators are going to go with this because if it's literal, we have a little problem with our doctrine of hell. We have a little problem with our doctrine of soul sleep. We have a little problem with a number of different things. So I'm going to stick with allegorical. Thank you very much. Are you with me on that one? Good. But the point is, Lazarus, who lived in luxury and in plenty, did not look out for his fellow human beings in their sufferings. And so the notion of every mountain being made low and every valley raised up isn't just an equilibrating for the mount of the temple. It isn't just a leveling of the spiritual reality. It's a Social economic reality as well. The caution that John the Baptist gives, and Jesus picks this up too, doesn't he? You know this so well because I've spoken of it so many times, I won't even go into it, but you know the passage is Matthew. And, and Jesus talks about how we love him by loving one another. We love him by serving one another. We show that we care about him when we take care of the least of these. That is what Jesus puts forth as a threshold. That is his criteria. That's how he measures who his are. That is how, on an 
action basis, he separates sheep from goats. Wish I were making this stuff up, but I'm not. We have to wrestle with it as it stands, uncomfortable as it may be. John then is asked, as I think, help me out here, he's asked by tax collectors next what their obligation is. And he takes them on. And he says, here's how you handle this. You collect only what is due. You don't gouge people. Don't use your authority with the Roman government to take advantage. Don't enrich yourself at the expense of someone else. Do your job and do it in an honest way. The centurions, Romans, the soldiers who were there listening to John the Baptist, who would later listen to Jesus, one of the centurions of which would say at the end of the crucifixion, surely this was the Son of God. What a declaration. That's at the end of Mark. These soldiers who were listening to John the Baptist and listening later to Jesus said, what do we need to do? And John the Baptist gives them a message that's very straightforward. Listen, don't accuse anybody falsely. Don't use excessive force. Do your job under the law. Now, this was enough at this point in time, to make people wonder if John was the Messiah. Can you imagine? This does not seem terribly complex to me, but hearing him divide it this way and hearing him preach this message where the valleys are going to be raised up and the mountains are going to be made low is enough to have people say, wow, I wonder if this is the Messiah. He speaks with such boldness. And Jesus is going to pick up this message and he's going to run with it and carry it forward in ways that are so powerful they're still changing lives today. When we talk about proclaiming the good news, it cannot be words alone. I may be preaching and they may be words But if they have the power of God attached to them at all, they make their way into your minds and hearts and they transform you in such a way that the way you choose to act and live in different situations changing. And if it isn't, I probably need to rethink my career. Because while I love public speaking, uh, I, I, I believe in transformation. I believe in preparation and proclamation I believe in welcoming the Christ who has come into our lives and letting that make a difference. I know you do too. So the short version of the sermon today is simply this. This phrase, this quote that I have in my letter, often uh, wishfully attributed to St. Francis, wrongly, however you want to frame that, I like the positive, is quoted there. We always preach the gospel. And if necessary, we use words. Whether St. Francis said it or not, it's a great quote. And we nod because it's got a depth of truth that we can all acknowledge. The most powerful sermon we preach is in the way we love our fellow human beings the way we care for them, the way we treat them, the way we tend to them, the way we love them, the way we comfort them when they're in pain. 
That's the most powerful sermon we can preach. I'd like to suggest to you that yesterday, that horrible, painful event most of us are still reeling from, the pastors who showed up to be with those families in their hour of panic and pain and crisis in their love and in their comfort and words of encouragement gave greater sermons to the community than they ever preached in their lives. I'm thinking that the families touched by the clergy gathered there heard a kind of gospel in a way through love and tears that they could never hear or see or feel it otherwise. And how deep that pain runs. How terrible these losses are. How apt our texts are today. It's a lectionary reading, if you can believe it. And the text speaks so beautifully to this today. Because the text speaks words of comfort to a people broken disenfranchised, separated, murdered, persecuted. It speaks to a people in pain. It speaks to suffering. So as we, if we can, let's go to the Zephaniah text for just a minute. For those of you who are still learning the books of the Bible, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Malachi is the last book of your Old Testament. The subheading is Restoration of the Remnant of Israel. I'm going to read briefly from the New Revised Standard Version, excuse me, because it's closer to what we're used to. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you and has turned away your enemies. These words have been immortalized, of course. For those of you who were here last week in the afternoon for our sing-along Messiah, you heard Bunny sing these words. They're for a soprano, so I hesitate to even try. But you, if you've heard the Messiah, George Friedrich Handel's Messiah, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice greatly. And she can do it so much better. Endless, you know, it, it takes uh, massive muscles down here to make that work. But it's been immortalized because of the joy and hope that's present. Sing, daughters of Jerusalem, because the Lord is going to restore you. He has taken care of your enemies. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. doesn't mean disaster won't happen. You just won't fear it anymore. He is with you. 
On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Don't fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will charge their shame into pray, change their shame into praise and renown in all that world. At that time I will bring you home. At the time when I gather you, I will make you renowned and pra- praised among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Handel took this text on many, many, many years ago. And a group called Hillsongs has taken on this text in more recent years. How many of you are familiar with the Australian group Hillsongs? They're contemporary, and uh, they do a, a really amazing job in their genre. And they've written a song or performed a song called This Is How We Overcome. I'm wondering if we can get audio on that. There we go. Thank you, we can cut that. 
may not be your kind of music. That's fine. May be your kind of music. Many of you may know that song. But did you hear the chorus? He has turned my morning into dancing. Right out of Zephaniah. And if we were Pentecostal, we would have just had the best time of the week right now. You would have been up singing, waving your hands, dancing. You would have been singing. You would have been, wow, it would have been really hard to quiet you down after that one. Hopefully you could hear in that the energy, the direction that Zephaniah is giving us. God takes these moments of oppression, these moments of suffering, these moments of pain, these moments of loss, of persecution, of everything. He's in the business of redeeming them in good news. And he turns our mourning into dancing. We don't have a place right now in heaven for these incredible children who've lost their lives, but we do believe in a resurrection. We do believe in a day when mourning will be turned to dancing. We do believe that the talent and the sweetness, the souls that could draw a picture like this won't be lost to God and won't be lost to all of us forever, but that he'll turn our mourning ultimately into dancing. You be watching for me. I'm going to be really dancing in that day. I may be stuck with the white man's shuffle right now, but in that day, I'm going to be dancing. Thank you. Yeah, none of that Adventist Lutheran stuff about my carnal passions being roused. I, like uh, Garrison Keeler, have to say they were up, dressed, and waiting for the bus. I didn't need dancing. Isaiah shares with us an optimistic message as well, one of rejoicing and positivity, one of salvation and redemption that's come. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the nations. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I believe God is standing in the midst of the pain and the shock and the sadness that surrounds yesterday and all of our lives as impacted by these events and others like them. And I believe that he will, by standing in our midst, give us the courage to proclaim a good news, 
in words if necessary and by what we do in how we respond in how we love. Paul isn't lost to these passages. Great student of scripture in Philippians 4, 4 to 7, he gives the contemporary church of his day this exhortation. Rejoice in the Lord always. That word always, always trips me up. I don't want to rejoice in the Lord always. I want to rejoice in the Lord occasionally. I want to rejoice in the Lord seasonally. I want to rejoice in the Lord when I feel like I have something to rejoice for. Yes, I have some growing up to do. And I'm guessing you do too. Rejoice in the Lord always, it says. Of course, we have a song for that too. We used to sing it as a round. You might remember it. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And in the midst of it all, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus today? Because as we fulfill this exhortation to give thanks always, rejoice in the Lord always. The act of thanksgiving and the act of praising physically, mentally, psychologically change our realities. They are part of what turns our mourning into dancing. They are part of what turns our loss into hope. They're part of what takes despair and something that's completely unredeemable and brings it into the realm that belongs to God where anything and everything is possible. There's nothing those clergy, sheriff, police, firefighters, people, teachers, parents, nothing they could do yesterday to make this situation whole, to make it right. They each did their part. Only God will be able to make this right. Only God can fix this. Only God can bring some sort of healing, some sort of redemption, some sort of hope, some sort of reconciliation out of this agony, out of this terror, out of this law. Only God. You know that, right? Only God. And so our good news this morning is not that bad things aren't going to happen. Our good news isn't that we're not going to experience horrible pain and loss. The good news isn't that we're immune from sickness and sadness and suffering and poverty and all of its effects. The good news is that God has called us to preach his message, first with actions and then with words to love his people, to deal fairly and kindly and justly with those around us, to have them know who we are by our love, as the song says, and to proclaim God's presence and his peace, his redemption and his hope in the midst of our suffering. 
That's why it says always. That's why we all need to grow into that because out of our suffering, he can bring joy. Out of our turmoil, peace. Out of our loss, gain. Out of our ruin, redemption. Out of our hopelessness, hope. Out of our sorrow, joy. So John gives us these words of hope. He's told people how to live. The common people, the tax collectors, the soldiers, those loved and not loved, the popular and unpopular. And at the end of it, he says something very interesting. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Our God stands winnowing fork in hand. The harvest is his and the judgment also. And as the day was anticipated in the time of John, so we anticipate it in the near future ourselves that God will come with righteousness and hope, with justice and judgment that every valley may be lifted up and every mountain made low. That Jerusalem won't stand on the Mount of God, but that the new Jerusalem, the holy Zion, will be our dwelling. And we will be with our God and he with us. And there will be no more tears or sorrow or suffering. But the old order of things will have passed away. And the good news won't be something we proclaim. It will be something we live and experience together forever. Amen.